Good morning. Today is Monday, September 19th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in. Whether it's over the air, online, through an app, as a podcast, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just glad you're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Now, Thy Strong Word is graciously underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates and publishes, distributes books that are Bible-based and Christ-centered and Reformation-driven. When you get a moment, next time you're at your computer, visit lhfmissions.org, learn about what they do. And while you're there, drop me a line. Questions, comments about today's show or anything you want to say, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. In fact, every Friday, I'm starting the show by pulling from the listener mailbag. So if you'd like your comments shared, you can also let me know. Well, let's get right into the topic, though. Today, we're going to dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the second half. Last time we dealt with the first, but we're back in Corinth, and you'll remember that Corinth is a, a monument to Roman culture and its values and its diverse religions. The city was dotted with temples and shrines to many pagan gods and idols, but all of these paled in comparison to the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love and sexuality, and Worship practices around her cult included temple prostitutes. That, along with some other things that aren't even worth mentioning, are made up the sexual deviancy that was very normalized in places like Corinth. And sadly, it appears that this affected some in the church too. So it's no surprise that in our text for today, Paul returns yet again to issues of sexual immorality. He writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Wow. To help us navigate and apply this text, I'm pleased to welcome to the show the Reverend Doug Gribbenau, Mission Advocate at KFUO. Pastor Gribbenau, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you, Pastor Boo. It's always my pleasure to be with with our brothers and sisters as we wrestle with God's Word. And I'll I'll tell you, today's subject matter, I felt like we needed to have a caveat, you know, warning the following program may be, you know, dangerous for sensitive viewers. (laughs) But that's right. And our hypersexualized society today, I'm not sure that a caveat is warranted anymore. Well, it, it would be nice if it were. I actually feel that way when I'm reading a lot of what Paul is dealing with in this Corinthian congregation. Because when you really look at it and when you break it apart, it wasn't, well, his last chapter, he was talking about uh, people having their father's wives. And we, you know, me and the last guest sort of tiptoed around like, what does that really mean? There is so much in here that is just grievous sin. And in our today, our day today, rather, I don't think that we would think anything of it. it it's just so, it's so prevalent back then but it's really just as prevalent today, which I think also is why things like 1 Corinthians make a great study topic, because we're dealing with these same issues almost 2,000 years later. You know, there, there is nothing new under the sun. That, that, 
I'm not sure who said it. It was a very wise person. <laughs> the grab bag can tell me who that was. That's but right. That's right. Yesterday are the sins of today. We struggle with the very same things that mankind has struggled with from the beginning of time. And, and the wonderful comfort to remember this is, is not that, oh, wow, humanity just really hasn't gotten any better after these thousands and thousands of years. No, the comfort is that God has been forgiving our sins, the sins of, of, of mankind from the very beginning. And he's promised to do so. He has done it in his son, Jesus Christ, and he continues to do it for you and me and for the Corinthians, for, for St. Paul, for, for Adam and Eve in the garden. He forgives for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. When we look out on the world, I think that we often find ourselves in despair or frustration. And yet it is comforting, just as you said, to know that God looks upon this. And first of all, he knows all things, so he's not surprised. But even even so, this has been going on since the foundation of humankind. Since we were created, there's been sin, the first sins of Adam and Eve, of rebellion and pride, the sin of murder. And you don't have to read far into Genesis to see a lot of the same things that are going on today. But you're right. We should not take comfort in saying, oh, well, you know, it's always happened, so it's going to continue to happen. No, the comfort is rightly found in Christ. Yeah, I love that you said that. That's perfect. And I think we're going to need that comfort today as we read into this text because, well, some of these things are fairly particular to the Corinthian experience, especially when he starts mentioning like the temple prostitutes. But that does not mean that these words, which were very important for the Corinthians to hear, don't still have very serious application for Christians today. Amen. You know, looking ahead a little bit from from 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, St. Paul, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Written almost 2,000 years ago and just as applicable today. But he goes on to say, God is faithful. Uh, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And that escape is in his son, Jesus Christ, who rescued us from sin, from death, from the power of the devil. So let, let, yes, let's, let's get to uh, what our Lord is rescuing us from. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, because we only have a handful of verses today, it looks like uh, eight verses, verses 12 through 20. I'm just going to read them all, get them all out on the table, and then we'll start digging in. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, from 
or rather whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay, that's the end of our text and everything we'll be looking at today. Beginning at the very at the very start at the top, verse 12, I, I cannot help but pull a parallel from today. The Corinthians are evidently he's quoting, right? A Corinthians uh, a mantra that they've either come up with or they've taken from him and uh, abused. And that is all things are lawful for me. He quotes that, but then he turns the tables and says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. It's this idea that, well, I'm in Christ and I'm forgiven, so I can do whatever I want. And we see that today too in, in this rejection of God's law and will for our lives. So starting at the top, brother, you know, What's going on here? Well, you know, he's been responding here in 1 Corinthians to reports he's received about what's been going on in this church and the challenges and the problems they've been having. And of course, this this is a congregation that is very near and dear to Paul's heart. I mean, he, he has spoken of himself as as their father, as their spiritual father. And so he has this intimate connection with them. And then he's hearing of, of these challenges, of these problems, of sin that is starting to run amok in, in this congregation. You know, in, when Luther was talking about uh, his, his introduction, his comment on Corinthians, he talks about the, the mad Christians that, that come storming in, uh, not mad as in angry, but mad as in crazy, <laughs> sort of these crazed Christians and these, these people who, who believe themselves so eminently wise. And that's really who St. Paul is, is, is having to, uh, to correct, uh, the, it, these these sort of self-proclaimed wise uh, Corinthians who are taking to an extreme the, the liberty that we have in Christ. You know, all things are lawful for me, which is, you know, going back to St. Paul saying that, you know, the law does not have a binding on us. We have been justified. We've been set free. We are declared righteous. And, and they're abusing that liberty and saying, we get to do whatever we want. Of course, St. Paul also, in his book on the Romans, talks about this too, you know, this sort of idea of cheap grace. You know, Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's where he says, by no means, or, you know, God forbid, forbid it not, let it not be. And in fact, that's a phrase that he's going to use here uh, in, in chapter 6 as well of, of 1 Corinthians. So he's dealing with folks who are, are they're taking the ball and they're running with it and they're going nuts. And one of the things about radio is that we, we don't have, uh, you know, the punctuation in front of us. And I'm trying to think of Victor Borgia was a comedian my dad used to love. And maybe oh, some sure. of you remember him. He had phonetic punctuation. And I wish I could remember what his, his phonetics were for quotes. Because in verse 12, it's, it's, quote, all things are lawful for me, end quote. Paul's response, he says the same thing again, quote, all things are lawful for me, end quote. And then his response. And then, of course, the final quote, this sort of mantra or phrase that has been running through this Corinthian congregation that he's received reports about. You know, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, end quote. And so he's responding to these these sort of banners of, of, um, of abused liberty 
that they're running forth and and uh, and just sort of pushing the envelope, <laughs> much like much like my uh, my toddler and and my uh, my six year old, who sometimes you know they try to take it to the letter of the word and just see how far they can push it before dad and mom say, "Whoa, whoa not so fast." <laughs> And that's sort of what Paul is doing. And they pushed it to this extreme. And Paul is saying, hey, hang on, guys. You know, this is not, this is not the, uh, the proper godly understanding of, of this liberty and freedom we have. Yeah, the, arg- the arguments that they're making are really ones that come from a place of arrogance. You know, I, all things are lawful for me. And I think it's clear that we can see, at least in part, that this is an abuse of Paul's teaching on Christian liberty. At the same time, I think there are within the Greek culture, within what they're experiencing from the outsiders at Corinth, which they clearly deal with, they're also struggling with, you know, Greek philosophical thought that separates the things they do with their bodies from from their souls. And Christian teaching, of course, is that God makes both body and soul— and so when they say things, all things are lawful for me, food's meant for the stomach and, and the stomach for food, I get this sense that they're also just throwing in there, well, what does it really matter what I do with my body? It's not my body that's going to heaven. It's going to be my soul. Do you, do you see that at all or do you think that's a stretch? No, that is, uh, that is spot on uh, as I would see. And, and the, really the text is, is supporting that. But so is an understanding of the uh, philosophical, the Greek philosophy culture that is in Corinth. Uh, it's it's this sort of, uh, it's a heresy that was even combated within the church, not just at Corinth, but in many other places. And it's sort of an abuse again of scripture, you know, the flesh profiteth nothing, as if the body was pointless and meaningless and of no worth, that it is only a spiritual ascent, a spiritual eternal life, that, that the things of the Spirit are what matter, the things of this world are, are pointless. Uh, it's sort of this, this Gnostic mentality that who cares what I do with my body, who cares what I do in this physical world, this physical realm, because you know everything that matters with God is purely spiritual, for God is spirit. And St. Paul is, is actually going to at the end of this argument, really ground and root this in, really in the incarnation, in Christ becoming flesh, God joining his creation. And without sort of letting the cat out of the bag, as they say, the the incarnation here is, is the understanding of what reality is for the Christian person. An axiom Again, your, your, your readers can look up the exact uh, quote for me and send it to your grab bag. <laughs> but you know, the axiom of <laughs> that which God has assumed, he has redeemed. Right? So one of the false teachings in the ancient world was that you know, Jesus was the physical body. Christ was the spirit that inhabited this body so that Christ could die on the cross, but he didn't die in a physical sense. And this was absolutely wrong. And, and their creeds were written to make absolutely clear what the truth of Holy Scripture is. You know, he is true God and true man. You know, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being a one subset with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, 
by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. God has assumed within himself our physical bodies and, and, and the uniqueness of the human creature is that we are the only thing that God created that is both flesh and spirit, body and soul. Animals have wills, they have bodies, they can be headstrong, but they do not have souls. You know, the angels are spirit and do not have bodies. Man is this unique crowning jewel of his creation, and the wholeness of us is in this body and this spirit. Christ, of course, suffered and died on the cross, physically and spiritually. He descended into hell the third day. He rose again from the dead. He has redeemed body and soul, the fullness of the human person in his death and his resurrection, which is why also in the creed we say, I believe in, you know, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, both body and spirit. Our bodies will be raised and made glorious like the glorious body of Christ at his resurrection. Our spirits will be now free from this infection of original sin, and we will be made glorious like him. And that is something wonderful to look forward to. But it also means that the body is absolutely and, and essentially a part of who we are and the fullness of the human person, not just spirit, but body. What he has created is us and the spirit we have is us and neither can be separated nor are they mixed, but they are uniquely and fully who we are which can take us into another aspect of the present culture where we have, you know, persons who are experiencing what used to be known as gender dysphoria, that their body didn't match their spirit. And yet the reality is that this body is created by God and that is who you are. God did not sort of give you a, a, a last minute swap. Whoops, nope, ran out of this model. I'm going to put this one here and you can figure right. it out. By 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 uh, changing this physical uh, this physical vessel to match a a sort of spiritual perception, now God has made you who you are in your body and in your spirit. That is you, and He has redeemed it, and He loves it, and it is fully you. So when we abuse our bodies, um, and and that can be manifest in many different ways. But Saint Paul is going to specifically be addressing. Uh, sexual immorality here, but we abuse our bodies in other ways. You know, when with uh, with the abuse of of drugs and alcohol, or you know, some folks struggle with you know that that the the challenge of cutting themselves. You know, with with the struggles of this world, you know, to feel something. Um, and when we abuse our bodies, we are abusing something that is precious. In the Lord, something that he has redeemed, something so worthy that he would suffer and die on the cross for your spirit and for your body. The fullness of who you are is beautiful and treasured by God. And as St. Paul says at the end, in fact, it's not your own. You, body and soul, were purchased with a price. You belong to God. And the old Adam in this says, oh, Gosh, I, I don't want to belong to anybody. But the new man says, thanks be to God. What a wonderful thing. What a better parent. What a better friend. What a better God to have 
than the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to own you, to say you are mine, and I love you, and I'm never going to let you go. And that's a wonderful thing. Even in the middle of verse 13, we don't even have to go to the end. He's already hinting at that when he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Already he's showing his hand. If it's not meant for sexual immorality, well, the unstated binary opposite, as Jim Belts would say, is that then it is meant for something else. You know, he, it's not revealed yet, but it is meant for something else in general for service to the Lord. So the body is so, so important. And so when we encounter people who are either rejecting their bodies out of a dysmorphia or were people who have been convinced that they would be better off if they were to reject their bodies, whether that be a physical thing or a spiritual thing or a pseudo-religious type of thing. No, it's so important to know that the body has been created by God and is good. It's not in that Gnostic idea of a body, bad, spirit, good. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that our bodies are mortal and they will be sown in mortality and raised in immortality, to paraphrase the apostle. But at the same time, they are our bodies that will be raised. Whenever I have a funeral, I, I try to work it in every time because it's so important and people do not hear it often enough. I point to the casket or even the urn, if that be the case, and say, this very body will be raised on the last day. God will raise this body, not some body he's going to create out of nothing, but this very body, whatever state it's in at the time when the Lord returns to raise it, it doesn't matter, but it will be raised. And that's why it's so important that we respect and love our bodies today. Amen. And, you know, and that's why we, we have this, what has become just a cultural practice, but it was a declaration. It was a, a testament that was given uh, by the deceased. And, and we would put it on the headstones, recreascat en pacem. R.I.P., which I love Latin because in this case it comes straight across into the English. Rest in peace. This is not the end. This is, this is a pause. <laughs> Rest here, body, because your work is yet to be done. On the last day, you're, you get to come back out. <laughs> Exactly. And we're looking forward to that. So rest in peace, which is to say rest in the Lord, you know, await his coming. Uh, and, and then, and then, you know, back to life, back to joy, back to peace, back to a, a, a better heaven and earth uh, than, than we've ever known. Uh, better than, in fact, even the garden. We, uh, we sort of idealize the garden of Eden. But the new heaven, the new earth that is to come is, is, is even beyond describing and beyond what, what was made in that first chapter in Genesis. It's a great thing to look forward to. Absolutely. Now, to, to shift gears just a little bit, I want to head back up to verse 12, but I, I want to address it now, but not from the perspective of the Corinthians or even sexual immorality. So back mm -hmm. to the mantra, a quote, all things are lawful for me, end quote, and then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. And then he says it again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Often this passage is at the center of discussions around what we would call adiaphora. So even though we're not dealing specifically with the issue at hand, in general, there's this concept that there are aspects of our Christian life that are neither commanded nor forbidden uh, in the scriptures. And so 
because of that and because of the overarching doctrine of Christian freedom, we're free in Christ, we find ourselves in this day and age, uh, mostly in terms of like ceremonies or other things, uh, doing things that God has really not spoken about specifically, but not all audiophora is created equal, I would say, is a more modern turn of phrase. Can we talk a little bit about audiophora and how it kind of fits into this idea that just because the Bible isn't explicit about something doesn't mean that we could do or not do that without any you know, danger to our faith? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good place for us to begin. You know, if we were to paraphrase verse 12, as opposed to a negative, but as a positive, you know, we would, we would perhaps say, and I love my Bible, but it's, it's got verse 12 on the, on the page turn. So you're going to keep the paper in the background here, right? You know, (laughs) all things are lawful for me and I shall choose to do those things that are helpful. All things are lawful for me, and I will choose to do the things that God has made me free to do. So that, that's perhaps how we could po- put this in, the, in a positive. Mm-hmm. But even even more, there's sort of a deeper reality. And this is, I, I think, a good lens for us to view this pericope, that is, this little selection of Scripture, is to turn back to Luther's letter on the freedom of the Christian. And, and there's this sort of axiom a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And then Luther immediately goes on to say, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to all. And that's the wonderful tension and dichotomy in which the Christian lives. We, we live free from, free from the constraints of the law, but free especially from our sinful passions and our desires and the abuses of this world. And we live in service to our neighbor. We live to serve and to love, for God has loved us and has given us everything. Every riches of heaven, he has given us his own son. And now we are free to be servants of our neighbors and of the stranger. We are now free from the concerns of, do I want to do this? Do I like to do this? You know, how does this benefit me to say, I love this person and I want the, I want them to, to be better. I want to, I want to speak to them the gospel that they may hear of Christ Jesus, that they may be filled then with the love of God, that they may be one with me and all our brothers and sisters in the one body that is built up into the head of Christ. And this is the, the wonderful reality that, yes, we, we don't have to do any of these things as being driven slavishly by a command, but we joyfully and absolutely must do these things because that is the very ontology, the very nature of this new creation that we are in Christ. This, this reality of God's loving, gracious will that has converted us and brought us out of the depth of sin, that now we live as God has, has lived for us, to love each other, to build one another up, to bear one another's burdens, and to proclaim the saving gospel of Christ Jesus to everyone. Because God does not desire the death of the sinner. He will punish the unrepentant if they stubbornly refuse 
uh, the forgiveness that is in Christ, but he desires that they would turn from their sin and live and be one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all who have been saved by faith in Jesus. Paul brings up this all things are lawful mantra yet again later on in this same letter. In chapter 10, verse 23, he brings up, quote, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And the 24 is especially important to what you're saying. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And we'll explore that more probably next week when we get to it. But yeah, that same argument is still here. We live for not you know, self-improvement just the sake of trying to get ahead so that we can be the, the our best life now. We live for our neighbor. Improving our own lives are great side effects of doing the things that God wants you to do. But when you're if your goal is just you, you yourself, you know, me, myself, and I, and that's that's the only concern in your life, which seems to be some of the issues that were being struggled with at Corinth, then yeah, that's not healthy. And that will find itself in abuse, both sexual but also, you know, I'm sure there were things like drugs and other things and alcohol that were being misused in this climate. And you look at today when people resist the will of God, oftentimes it's couched in this idea that, hey, I don't want anybody controlling what I can do. I'm my own person. I can do whatever I want. I, I don't have to answer to anyone. And if you have enough money and you have enough fame or power, you see how often those people end up in drugs and alcohol and sexual sins. Uh, but even if you don't, that's a temptation for all people. So when a life is lived, as you so rightly said, in service of neighbor, it removes from us that, it doesn't remove, I should say, it tempers the, our desire to just satisfy our own basal instincts because, you know, we're trying to look out for the other guy. You know, one of my seminary professors would always talk about the passions, right? And and this idea, this this Roman stoicism, you know, the, uh, that you would subdue your passions, you know, mind over matter, that kind of a thing. And and this is sort of coming into play with the way St. Paul here is phrasing the second part of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. You see, when we satisfy these sinful passions, we are submitting ourselves back to their demands and their, their controlling nature as if we were mindless beasts. We wish to do this thing and we cannot help ourselves, which is, which is what addiction so often manifests itself as. We cannot help ourselves. And, and before the, the, the Holy Spirit has called us by the gospel, we were slaves to our passions. We have been now set free that we need not just do it because that's what we must do. But these Corinthians in this sort of twisted idea of all things are lawful, I get to do what I want to do, no one can tell me what to do, right? That the reality is that these supposedly wise, you know, free uh, Corinthians were in fact then coming back under the, the slavery of, of sin. Um, in the Concordia Publishing House, the CPH commentary on 1 Corinthians, if you go to page 215, I, I love the, this one line. You know, Scripture sometimes personifies sin as a tyrant, which tries to overpower its devotees and keep them subject to its authority. 
And that is really what has happened with these Corinthians. And they've, the word of God, this, this liberty we have in Christian has been perverted now as a, as a sort of license to come back to sin. Oh, see, you can do it now. And this tyrant of sin closes back the gate and holds them captive once again. And that's what St. Paul is, is coming back then to do, is to speak again to them the gospel, to set them free from their captivity, and, and to give them fatherly guidance, and by the power of God's word and the work of his Holy Spirit, to restore them to this true liberty we have in Christ. Well, Pastor, we're up against a break, so let's pause for just a few moments and listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we get back, Pastor Gribbenau and I will continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Doug Gribbenau, Mission Advocate at KFUO. Now, Pastor, before the break, we were in a great conversation about just how God has made us to serve one another. Uh, let's keep talking, but since we've been you know, going on for a little while and we don't have that many verses to do, I'd like to reread the text and just keep on pressing through. And I'm going to begin again with verse 12 and go through verse 20. Quote, all things are lawful for me, end quote, but not all things are helpful. Again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. All right, so getting back into the details, um, the body's not meant for sexuality, but for the Lord. We talked about how God has created the body for better things. But then he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And talks about, should I then take that which is a member of Christ and unite it to a prostitute? Now, undoubtedly, prostitution 
colloquially known, I guess, as the world's oldest vocation. I don't know that that's true, but I get it. I shouldn't say <laughs> vocation. I should say occupation. Occupation, um, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, this may be a little bit more than just prostitutes. It could also involve worship, pagan worship of, the, of Aphrodite, which, which we know uses temple prostitutes in that worship. The sexuality of, of husband and wife is is a beautiful gift reserved for that union, that that one flesh reality, which St. Paul even talks about here, uh, that is, is a way in which a man and woman uh, participate in the creativity, the creative activity of God in bringing forth children. Uh, the, 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 you know, the Lord knits us together in the womb. At conception, he puts us together in there body and soul right there, no matter how many little cells there are, right? That is you and God has made you and he has loved you as your mom and dad have loved you and he brings you forth, right? That, that this is a wonderful thing, but it is reserved for, for this space, this reality. And, and to connect it even further, this reality of husband and wife, of, of man and woman being one flesh, is our experience, but only a shadow of the greater reality that is the, the truth of marriage. And St. Paul says, you know, that it is a great mystery. It is the mystery of Christ and his church, of which our, our marriages of husband and wife are, are but a reflection, as beautiful and amazing as they are. They are meant to be this, Christ in his church. And, you know, St. Paul even goes back here into Genesis to talk about, you know, that man and, and woman be one in this, this act of marriage that is, that is fundamentally and intimately tied with what it is to be husband and wife is a, a reunion of, of the fullness of the human person. You know, where we go back to Genesis you know, where a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I always think back to how God has created Adam and Eve, man and woman, that, you know, the very first thing God said wasn't good in the garden was that man was alone. Let us make a helpmeet for him, right? Now, all of the creatures that God had made paraded before Adam, and none of them were worthy of this crowning jewel of creation that is the human person. And so God caused the deep sleep to come upon Adam, and he took out of Adam the rib and formed Eve, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Adam, or man, incomplete apart from Eve or the woman. And then the two of them, really, that is the fullness of a humanity, the fullness that is to be enjoyed in, in the bonds of marriage of a man and a woman, a husband and wife, one flesh, that they are, are complementary, that the things that Adam lacks, Eve brings in, the things Eve lacks, Adam brings in, the two of them are even greater and better together. Uh, and, and what God has put together, let no man separate. And it would be good for us to remember this in our modern age, because this is a reality. And what St. Paul is saying is when you engage in this fundamentally uh, marriage-based activity, 
you are effectively creating marriage. And that's sort of what he's saying. You, you have bound yourself to this harlot, to this temple prostitute, and, and that is effectively your wife. Though it isn't, and now there is this disunity, this tension, this confusion, this injury of these two people, not just in body but in soul, because you have been joined together as one flesh and, and as one soul, and, and now are rent apart again because, because this was a casual engagement. And so in this First Corinthians world, you know, prostitution was was legal, was often practiced in the ancient world. You know, after feasts, there would sometimes be just a, a, a big orgy afterwards. And that was just every day. That was considered completely normal. And in pagan worship, especially in fertility cults, the, the liturgy of the fertility cult was to engage in sexual intercourse with a temple prostitute. And and no one in the ancient world would bat an eye at this. That, that was just the way things were. And that's partly of what's so radically different about Christians. And one of the great challenges for these Corinthians is that they're being called out of this way of the world that is enslaved with passions, desires, selfishness into a different reality that is now a, a reality of, of love and love for God and service of the neighbor. Very different than what it had been and what our, our sort of sinful nature is. And as we've heard in First Corinthians previous chapters, you know, they're starting to fall back into the way things were. And St. Paul is calling them back, you know, back to this, this new and greater reality. And sexual sins, sexual immorality um, are, are almost, as St. Paul even sort of say, on a different level, a different reality, a different, a different uh, impact for us. And many sins have beset and, uh, and, and, you know, tempted Christians of every age. But I think it's fair to say that the sexual sins have, you know, from generation to generation to generation, posed an especially pernicious threat uh, to to the life of the Christian, and and it, and it's a big struggle. And I think even today, especially with the accessibility of uh, pornea, pornography, as well as the hypersexualized culture of of today, we are probably more like the first century Corinthians than you know the. The 20th century Americans. And that's my soapbox. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, there are two words that you use that I want to bring back up to our listeners' ears. And those two words are legal and normal. You said these things were legal and normal so far as anybody was, you know, outside the church was concerned. Today, to sort of now climb on that soapbox you were just using. Today, we have so much pressure from those outside the church to accept and give affirmation for things precisely because they are legal and normalized. And each and every day, even things that used to not be normal are becoming increasingly normalized. So you can see how even without the persecution that, say, Christians face in the Middle East or in China, even without that 
physical persecution, Christians in America and Europe and other places are having their wills and their and their faith tested constantly by a world that hates Christ and that hates what God wants. And so we're constantly being tempted to just, you know, you know, be chill. It's legal. It's normal. Uh, and now you can enter into those things, whatever you want them to be. They do vary. Uh, and there is Christian freedom, even among things that maybe some other Christians might not like. We're going to talk about that in a few chapters. But still, there are some things that are clearly against God's will that the world completely condones. And as a Christian, you have to risk sometimes your friends, your uh, reputation from the people out in the world to stand up for what's right. And it's hard and it's difficult. So it sounds like, you know, the whole time we've been going through Corinthians that we're picking on these Christians for losing their way when really we should be empathetic, if not sympathetic, to the fact that they are in a culture that is bearing down upon them. And it is hard. Without the Lord, they they will continue to give in to those things. And that's why Paul loves them so much that he writes them this strong, strong letter to say, you know, come back. The Lord, the Lord, flee. Verse 18, flee from these things. And then, yeah, it is unique. And you brought it up specifically about these sins against one's own body being unique. And so this brings to my mind the idea of uh, like two kinds of righteousness. We talk about this uh, in theological circles, the idea that our sins before God, our vertical sins are all equally damning, but the sins that we commit against one another, well, they do have varying effects on your neighbor. And so there is a different level of sins when it comes to how they affect your neighbor, even though they may all be equally heinous before God. And so Paul's speaking here about this heinous sin. You know, is it is it is it more heinous against God? Well, they're all equally damning. So it's probably more about your relationships with other people, your relationship with your spouse if you have one, and frankly, even your relationship with the with the pagans and and the and the sacred prostitutes, so called themselves. Because what kind of witness are you giving them? And it's it's very and that's something we should remember too as we seek to both live in the world but not of it. And and really the, the the most the ironic thing of of Paul's argument against sexual immorality, uh, you know these these Corinthians that have been entirely selfish, you know fulfilling all the self desires, these self passions, uh, they're entirely selfish, and yet this sin of sexual immorality is injurious, especially to themselves, not just to their neighbors, right. and not just in the witness. But this sort of unique sin is injurious to the whole person of who you are, body and soul. And and that's really what he's sort of twisting this on its head and saying, you, know, you want to say that you're absolutely free, and yet you have become enslaved. And more than that, the one you are hurting is, is the one that you supposedly love the most, you selfish person. You're injuring yourself. You know, he, he says in... In verse 18 here of chapter 6, you know, flee from sexual immorality. Keep running away from it. And probably he says, you know, keep on running is sort of how the, the verb is constructed. Because this is a struggle that you're going to have and, and continue to have. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And 
in this case, St. Paul's saying, you know, that, that it's, it's your whole self here uh, that is going to be injured by this sin. Um, because, yeah, when you, when you steal, you know, you, you have injured the person from whom you've taken that thing. When you, when you, uh, you know, uh, when you're even just angry with someone, you know, you've murdered them in your heart. You know, you, you have injured their reputation, their person. You, you've, you've said things that you shouldn't have. Um, all sorts of sins that we commit um, are, are damaging to the neighbors and, and to the world and especially to, uh, to God's, if you would say, reputation. Right? You've been purchased with a price. God has put his name on you. You've been marked on your forehead and your heart, you know, with the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, marked as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. You now are wearing his logo. So everything you do reflects not on you, but on him. Uh, and so it is also injurious to God. But the sexual sin is actually worse because it, it injures you in body and soul. Uh, that whole idea of of a marriage that is is sort of conceived in in disunity and confusion and falsehood and then you're rending it apart this sort of casual affair and it's you've been deeply injured because because you have effectively been then divorced uh, and and that's what's so uniquely terrifying about this and it really has to come down to our perspective and view of of the human person and that's sort of where, where St. Paul has been going with this both before and after verse 18. You know, our understanding of, of what, what we are, who we are, and to whom we belong, and the whole point and, and worth of ourselves. Because that's also the other great challenge of, of sin, the, the, perhaps one of the greatest lies of Satan, is, is to say, well, are you really all that important? Are you really all that beautiful? Are you really all that wonderful? Are you really all that lovable? Are you really all that forgivable? To which God says, you are beautiful. You are wonderful. I love you. I'm, I will give my life for you. And I will forgive your sins always because you are precious to me. You are the best and the most wonderful thing in all creation. And, you know, even our earthly fathers get to do this. You can say to each one of your kids, you're my favorite. And it's absolutely true. And God says that to you. And it's absolutely true. You, dear listener, are God's favorite. And so am I. <laughs> God loves you. Absolutely. And he gives anything for you. You know, that, the, 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 you know, the pearl of great worth, right? One of those parables. God gives everything to have you because you mean that much to him. No matter what you think of yourself and no matter what the world tells you about yourself, you are precious and wonderful to him. Your worth is in his view, the objective reality of what he has said about you and not about how you feel about yourself or even the, the things that your body may crave for its own gratification, its own sense of self-worth. Those things are, are part of those things that will pass away, the things of this world. But the worth of who you are, body and soul, is enduring. That is part of, part of God's word that will last until the end of the age. That he says, you are wonderful. You are mine. I love you. I would give everything for you. And, and he has. And he'll continue to do so.
verse 19 is not the first time that he talks about their body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 3 of this same letter, verse 16, he says then the same thing basically, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? And then, But he changes in this section because he wants them to understand that they aren't just uh, dedicating them or to be dedicating their lives to God, but rather they have been purchased by God. You know, verse, uh, the same verse, verse 19, you are not your own into 20, for you were bought with a price. In Corinth, there were, as I've said previous shows, there were about 400,000 slaves and only, and less than that, of freed people. So slavery and the idea of bond service, and even though it might have been different than what we consider slavery today, it still was not a position to be admired or envied. Paul will start comparing our service to Christ as being in service uh, like a bond servant. And so he's kind of bringing them down a peg in a sense that if you think you're self-righteous, then your righteousness isn't in yourself, it's in Christ. He says you're not your own, you were bought with a price reflecting what Christ has done for us, how he bought us with his precious blood. But he turns once again the tables on the whole idea because the Corinthian Christians would have immediately thought of being a servant as being an extremely negative thing, and yet this is the best thing to be, to belong to God, to be purchased from our slavery when we were enslaved to the world by the blood of Christ, and now our service is in service to God. We have a new master, but at the same time, we have a new master. And so there's that both aspects of the Christian life, one that clings to the forgiveness won for us by Christ, but that also, through the Holy Spirit, seeks to live out their faith active in good works and and avoiding sin, just as he's calling them to do. Amen. You know, the uh, I, I always sort of view when we talk about having having this master who is God, this idea of of the the old world. I, I played with Legos, the castle Legos, when I was a kid. I loved those. Robin Hood was my first hero, and and now Captain Kirk's my hero. But that's a totally sidebar discussion. <laughs> but you know, this idea of kings and servants, right? And what is it that that all the kings of the world do? They sit in the castle and they send their armies and they say, go out there and start punching each other and killing each other. And, you know, and may, and maybe my side will win and that'll be great. Right. <laughs> That's probably a bit <laughs> right, extreme. Right. But what does our king do? He says, hey, you give me all your sin. Oh, you've got the life sentence. Oh, you've got the death sentence. Give that all to me. All right. I'll I will be back in three days, guys, but I'm going to go up here. And they're going to beat me, they're going to whip me, they're going to torture me, they're going to murder me, and it's going to be humiliating and awful, and you don't have to do it, because I'm going to do it for you. And all the wrath of God's going to come on me, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back, and it's all clean. Your sins are forgiven. It's far from the east and the west. Our king goes out and fights the battle for us. Kings of this world make us fight the battles for them. Now, which... Which master would anyone rather have than the loving king who gives of himself for you? And that's a great master to serve. I think that's a great place to end also. I'd like to thank my guests, the Reverend Doug Gribbenau, Mission Advocate at KFUO. Thank you, Pastor, for all the good work you do on behalf of the church and also the, the radio station. Thanks for being on the show. 
Well, thank you, brother. And thank you, brothers and sisters, for listening to KFUO Radio. It's always great. And I host the afternoon music block one to three. Tune in for me, would you? Excellent. Sounds wonderful. And tune in tomorrow also as we continue in 1 Corinthians. And we'll be moving into chapter 7. We're going to take 7 in three parts because there's so much to dig into. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. Word.